With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to him. 10.30 The radio's all yours now. I talked to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. You're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five tonight. Mike Donovan is in, stand-up comedian and historian. And Mike, and on August twelfth, two thousand four, something happened, and you set out on a mission to write the history, basically, of everything. And you're you're well on your way. What happened on that day? Well, uh, actually, the night before, I got my first laptop in the mail, and I uh, had the package there, and. I watched the Red Sox game, and I said, starting tomorrow morning, I'm not going to make the Red Sox priority anymore. And I love the Red Sox. I watch them. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I just said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to this project. And uh, Dean Johnson, who uh, you know was a, on this station quite a bit, uh, he wrote an article about me in the Herald in 1995 where he's profiling me as a comic, and I'm talking to him about my goals for the future is someday – write a total history of the United States uh, with a little touch of humor, not flippant, but just a little sprinkle of humor. And that was my goal, to someday do that. And I started it, so that was 95, and I did it nine, I started it nine years later. So the first goal was to write history in the United States, president by president, the United States in the time of, say, Bill Clinton? Yes, each one is a separate book. So I started out with the internet, I, I put it up on the internet, and I, what I call an A-frame, you put a, uh, a, a, a two-page outline of each presidency. So there's always a balance. And then for the next 15 years, I'm, I'm, I'm adding new stuff, but making sure one chapter doesn't get too far ahead of the rest. So that when people ask me, where are you in your studies? Uh, what, what do you mean? Well, where are you up to now? Are you up to, you say you're writing the total history. Are you up to Jefferson? Are you up to the I've been up to everything from the beginning. It's always so you did been, them all at the same time. Yes. You put two, a few lines about each one, and you fleshed them out evenly as, yes. you, as you went along. So now the average book is about 55,000 words. And there are more, though. Talk about the other, some of the other books in the, in, in the order of importance to you. Well, the best book, well, first of all, in January, I decided that this project, this 15-year project, is essentially completed. It's done. Now I can do something else if I want to. I mean, I'll, I'll still work on the other stuff, don't get me wrong. But so I went and started digging up through some old manuscripts, and I came up with, the, well, one, was, one I always knew I was going to do was the history of Russia. 
I, there's a real need for it. I mean, you can write a great history of the United States, but is there a real need for it? Maybe, maybe not. There's a need for a, a history of the United States with a little touch of humor the way I write it, but that's, that's a matter of opinion. But there is definitely a need for a general history of Russia, for the general reader. And even though I feel that anybody can enjoy this book, my target audience is a Russian, a Russian-American, someone who says, this is a touch of home. This is a touch of my country's history. I can still be a, an American and love this country, but I can also go back to my roots. And this guy, Mike Donovan, who's never even been to Russia, has written the most readable, the most enjoyable, and, and thorough. It's pretty thorough. It's 90,000 words. That's thorough enough. A history of Russia. Back to the United States series. Okay. How did you know when you were done? Any project, any song, any album, one of the hardest things is to know when you're done. How, how did you decide, I'm done? Especially after 15 years, it's, you're used to it. You have this momentum, and they just... Well, every time I get a new edition in the mail, I go through it, and I'm you know chopping out errors and circling errors, and then I republish it with the errors fixed, and I just felt I had reached a point where each book now is error-free in... in in terms of my standards, it can't be quite as good as Random House, but it's, I know it's pretty darn good. And I got this other one, Diary of a Baseball Fanatic. Which you had the time to do since you I had the time to do. And I said thing. to myself, I, who knows? I mean, half, I've lost a lot of friends. I'm 64. And I just said, if I have the time, I'll, write, I'll, I'll dig up that old base. Because I wrote that baseball manuscript in 1977 in, in notebooks by hand in pen. And it's been sitting around for 40 years. And so now I'm transcribing it into a real book. It's a pretty good book. And it's it's just very enjoyable. Sitting right here, Diary of a Baseball yeah, Fanatic. It's 140,000 words. That's a lot of reading. And, and then the motion picture book, Reviews. Yeah, I'd realized that all over my house, I keep finding these old reviews that I wrote of movies from the time I was, I'm, I'm 64, I've been doing them since I was about 25. Uh, you know, I'll go through a burst where I spend a few weeks banging out all these movie reviews, and they're all over the place. There's different types of typewriters. You can see all different, you know, you scrape them all together and then start publishing it. And then add a few ones you saw recently. And so I put in parentheses the year I reviewed it, 2019 review. I'll have, a, say, a 1945 movie, 1997 review, because it makes a difference when you reviewed it, because of how old you were, how you saw life, and the world that you were living in when you reviewed it. Did you ever review any twice, once then and once again? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, one good example would be Farewell, My Lovely. I gave it a one star. I have an eight, a nine star system. There's plus four, there's negative four, and there's zero. So you can go into ne negative. Negative stars means you wish you hadn't even seen this movie. <laughs> this uh, this is poison. There's nothing wrong with being a bad movie. That's a one star movie. That's a bad movie. There's nothing wrong with that. Zero is like I just saw one with uh, Anthony Hopkins, Solace. I gave that zero stars. It, it wasn't quite offensive, but it was totally useless to me. What are some negative uh, threes and twos? Uh, well, mostly it's anything that's so Invasion USA with Chuck Norris. I gave that negative four stars. I couldn't get through it. I just thought it was awful and violent and just politically nasty and just like <laughs> I just couldn't get I through I think that's got to be a good book Call it is because I'm different and here's why I know I'm different when I re when I get annoyed with a movie and then I look on the IMDB and then I see I'm, I'm looking for someone else to be annoyed at the same thing I was annoyed with yeah and it usually isn't that way it's, I seem to be the only one that was annoyed by this aspect of the movie which 
leaves you feeling a little bit lonely, but at the other, on the other hand, it means that you've got something to offer, something that's a little different. Midnight Cowboy you liked. Yeah, that was terrific. Four stars. Melody, Jack Wilde, Mark Lester. I don't know that one. Yeah, it was a British. It was real bad. I love that you, that you give bad reviews. Negative. I think that's a great yeah, idea. Neg- negative stars. All right. So that, anything else as far as your journey, your mission? Are we caught up on, on that? The only thing we Well, really- I'm working on a stand-up comedy book, and I have 20,000 words. And ordinarily, I would publish at that level. 20,000 words. I can make it 14 font, keep the margins kind of wide. And I'd, I'd pr- that would probably, you know, I could make that 105 pages and I could publish it. But I don't want to publish that until it's at least 80,000 words. Because that'll be a gimmick in itself. Because there's a lot of books about stand-up, but they're all small. Medium at the most. The, uh, Steve Allen wrote a couple of large books, but nobody else. Stand-up comedy books are flimsy. So this is a book about stand-up yeah, comedy. Yeah, everything. My life, stand-up comics, how to do, you name it. It's just, it's going to be vignettes. It, it's not that well organized. It's partly biographical, partly like, you know, things that happen, problems. You know, I might, have a se- I might have a section called Bringing Myself Up. That's when the comic says, don't worry, I'll, I'll bring, I'm, I'm going on last. There's five people in the show. I'm going to bring myself up, meaning you walk up on stage and say, folks, I'm going to introduce a really great guy. He's a very talented guy. Please give a nice welcome to Mike Donovan. And then I walk, and then I turn around, and ha, 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 it's him. Now, a lot of people like to do that, and I fight with them. I say, don't do that. It, it sets a bad tone to start the show. It's unprofessional. And when you get a nice, lively little intro for the host or whoever comes out first, yeah. in, the, in the short run, your idea works. In the long run, it doesn't. That's my opinion. But that would be an example of a little vignette that okay. I throw in the stand-up book. Now, we, get, we edge into World War II. There's the who's who. It's, this is not the big one. This is the who's who in World War II. Yeah, that's, that's the only book that I've ever written where I know that I can say what's not to like. This is the most complete It's very as far thorough. as being, it was, you're, you're being satisfied with it. Yes, and it was very thorough before I went through a couple of encyclopedias just to make sure I didn't miss anybody important. You know, I just went through a couple of World War II encyclopedias because I, I don't want to do a model of another guy's encyclopedia. So I want to do my own version based on my reading, you know, haphazard, pick it up here in the develop. Now when it gets up to about 80,000, 90,000 words, now just before I publish it one last time, I'll go through a couple of ones, uh, John Keegan, uh, military history of military illustrated uh, encyclopedia world. And I go through, I make sure I didn't miss anybody important. So there's nobody important that is not in that book. With, okay. the, ex- with the one exception, there are people that do not fit into a, one of the major categories of countries, like isolated figures from other countries, political figures. And they're not, that, that'll be another little chapter that'll be, come along. So that's the who's who in World War II. By the way, you may have noticed, usually we'll say, we'll tell people where to get the, where you can get the book here or there. Mike asked me not to do that. He said, Oh, no, no. I just, it's just contact information for me oh. personally. But the book, the books are on Amazon. Oh, all right. And sometimes they're under I Mike. I thought you were saying. Oh, no, no. Sometimes if they want it, they can find it. That's, <laughs> no. that's what you said. You no, said I meant if they wanted me. Oh, all right. If they want to contact me, they can find me. All right. So they're on Amazon. They're all on Amazon, either under Mike Dunneman or Michael Edward Dunneman. Okay. And the value to this is you get a big picture chronologically and kind of see how things fit together. I think you're going to like it. Mike, let's start with uh, the event the event that kicked it off. And you mentioned the dynamics of a September 
one through three ish in what was that 39 yeah september 1st 1939 but the big way the big reason that hitler was free to attack poland was because he had finally secured the uh, alliance with russia on august 23rd and the reason that it, it, the west was rather shocked to see this this pact of august 23rd they didn't expect this to happen they thought they could court russia and still at least achieve some sort of Russia leaning towards the West, even if they didn't get anything formal. But the pivot was the Baltics. The, uh, the West was not prepared to offer Russia anything, just the chance to go to war, and Germany was prepared to r offer Russia the Baltics. They said, if you, if you will remain neutral when we attack Poland, and you can even take a slice of Poland while you're at it, but we'll let you have the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, and Esto uh, Lithuania. You can, you can have these, these countries. Lithuania was not supposed to be included initially, by the way. But that was the difference. That's why Hitler attacked Poland, and that's why Stalin chose to make the pact with Hitler, was because Hitler offered the Baltics. So the Baltics were the key. The other key was that Ribbentrop, Johann Ribbentrop, the foreign a minister, probably the worst foreign minister in world history, he had convinced uh, Hitler that uh, the West would not intervene. They would not attack Poland. They would, they would not, not attack Poland. They would not intervene on behalf of Poland. They would not declare war on Germany. What made him think that? Or did he actually think that? Did he just... Ribbentrop really thought it because Ribbentrop was not a very bright guy. He was a wine merchant and a you know, just a kind of a not a very nice man, and no one ever considered him brilliant. <laughs> and, but but he had Hitler's ear, and and Hitler listened to him. And the others, Goring, and the others were trying to tell Hitler, don't listen to Ribbentrop. It was a one man band. I mean, the, my biography of World War II starts with uh, the the who's who, the Ribbentrop entry. It starts off. Uh, Johann Ribbentrop started World War II. Other than that, he had a clean record. This man convinced Hitler that France and, and England would not intervene. And when they intervened, see, the, the, the normal image of Hitler conquering Poland, here he is getting nothing but great reports from the field in Poland. He's getting one report after another. We are destroying Poland. Things could not possibly be going better. And this adjutant on the 3rd of September had to walk into this room where Hitler was in there with, uh, with Goebbels and Goering. They're all sitting there. And he had to walk in and announce to Hitler that, officially speaking, England and France have declared war. And somebody is warning, well, they already know that. He says, I have orders. I have to go in there, and I have to tell them that, even though they already know it. Right. You've got to make it official. So he walks in and tells them that, and he comes out. And he explained later, he says, I never saw longer faces in my entire life. Here they are getting nothing but reports that everything's going great. And they're shocked. They're horrified. Because they rationalize later on that they could wage this world war. You were asking me before, what was the grand strategy? The grand strategy was they didn't want World War II. Germany didn't want it. That's the grand strategy. They just wanted they just to expand wanted, quietly. That's right. And so from the time that guy walked into the room and told them that France and England... With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One had to clear. From that time, deep down inside, in my opinion, Hitler knew that he could not win. That was the and, moment. And everything else was just a, just a play. Just letting it play out? Just letting it play out. So France caving in was significant because... Hitler did not have to use resources there, and he could use them elsewhere. Yes, that was a huge one. That was part of it. And after, see, when Stalin made the deal with Hitler, he knew that Hitler would consume Poland. He presumed that that would eat up some of the, you know, machinery. And then he knew that, and everybody knew, that he was eventually going to attack in the West. That was an open secret. It was just a matter of time. Why did France cave so quickly? What was, how did that happen? It's a disgrace. Part of the reason was because there was such pro-fascist sentiment in France. They like, well, we hate Germany. They're our enemy. But, you know, it's the lesser of two evils. It's about time. They admired uh, the fascist. It was a, not France as a nation, but a, a hardcore minority of France was pro-fascist. And they kind of liked Hitler. They had mixed feelings. They didn't like the fact that he was a German, but they liked what he stood for. And so when, when Stalin presumed that the Hitler would attack in the West, he also presumed that France would put up a hell of a fight. And by the time that was done, who knows, that might take six or eight months. By the time he figured they'd lose. He figured France, most people figured France would lose, they, they, but they thought it would be a tough fight. Well, at that point, he figured that correctly that if that had happened, then France wouldn't have the wherewithal I mean, then Germany wouldn't have the resources now to attack Russia. And they did. What made them think that they could defeat Russia quickly? They, they thought it would be quick. What made them think that? They thought it would be very quick. They thought Russia would be conquered by October or November, in like a five- or six-month lightning campaign. Part, uh, a large part of it was Hitler's experience in World War I. He saw the entire war, and all, Germany had its hands full in the West at all times. And the battlefield in the east was fluid, and Russia was thoroughly defeated. By the beginning of 1917, Russia was defeated. And they had not made an impression to, to, the, to Corporal Hitler. Uh, the other one was the Russo-Finnish War in December of 1939, when Russia attacked Finland. Finland fought back excellently and delayed the Russian invasion. The whole world was excited, headlines. If you, you go to the Boston Globe. Yeah and read headlines from, uh, from early 1940, late 1939, and see everybody's excited about how well the Finns are doing against the Russians. But there was, so that gave him the idea, well, if, if, if Russia has its hands full trying to beat the Finns, then we probably don't have much of a worry in, right. in taking the Russians. Okay. So these were two foolish moves. However, it was not your, the same Russia as, as World War One. Things had changed. Things had changed. It was much more industrialized. And you, you, you spoke to me earlier about how, while Stalin was a very bad guy, he did some good. He did at least one good thing for his country and yeah, gave him yes. a, a infrastructure. Yes, exactly. Perhaps it was by accident, but when he forced 
Russia in the 20s and early 30s to industrialize at the cost of millions of lives. You could make an argument that he's a mass murderer, but, but he was doing something that in the long run, when the war broke out, was going to pay off big time. Because it was not in, in 1910, Russia was not an industrialized country hardly at all. Uh, but in the 20s and 30s, he all these five-year plans, he forced Russia to industrialize, but it was mostly for tractors, you know, and, and the like. But now when the war broke out, he flipped a switch. Now it's going to take 15 months, perhaps, to switch over from tractors to tanks. But the infrastructure is there now. And by the time you reached 1944, the reports coming back to Germany about what Russia was throwing up in the field, they're just like, you know, Hitler, you don't know what we're up against. They're throwing hundreds of tanks at us in planes. It's beyond belief what, what they're creating with our industry. Even if we, even if the bombing campaign was not as effective as the Allies thought it would be, and Germany was somehow, and this is true, they were somehow able to increase production even at the worst time of 1944 when the cities are getting pounded. We're still increasing our military. But you're not going to keep up with what the Russians are doing. We are talking World War II. We're with Mike Donovan and... Among the many, many, many books he's put together, there's one in the Second World War, and that's kind of the backdrop for what we are talking about. They're all available on Amazon. The United States is not into the war in our conversation yet. We've talked about Germany, the Baltics, Russia, France, but not the United States. So we, let's, go, let's go that way. Initially, there was resistance from the, the states to get involved. What happened? How did we get involved? The United States got involved because Hitler declared war and did uh, Roosevelt a favor on, on December 9th. And they, they wanted him to, to declare war, but they weren't sure that he was going to because that gave Roosevelt a, a great advantage because he didn't have to persuade Congress that we should go to war against Germany when everybody was really angry uh, with Japan. Most Americans accepted that we were probably going to go to war with Germany, but it wouldn't have been as... It probably would have passed, but it wouldn't have. There was no problem once Hitler declared war. And when did we actually get the boots on the ground? It took a while to gear up. We, we weren't yet industrialized. Yes, uh, the, enough. The British complained, uh, and the historians still complain. Well, it took you guys long enough. You know, you declared war, and, and how it was the same thing in World War One. You guys declared war in April 1917. It took you like a year before you actually got boots on the ground. In France, and instead of doing any real fighting, I mean, how long do you? Uh, actually, about ten months, not quite a year. But the same, the point is strong on the on the World War II also that we didn't get into uh, the war on the ground in in Europe until we went into uh, North Africa, which is technically Africa, but it's the European conflict, and that was Operation Torch. The torch landings. The torch. Could you landings. talk a little bit about that? I don't know anything about it. The torch landings, there was a lot of argument about it because the Americans, believe it or not, strangely enough, they wanted to invade Cross Channel in 1942. And the British had to talk them out of it. They, they said, we'll get creamed. We can't invade. It's, well, we don't, and the American position was, well, we don't care. We're at war, and that's the way we do it. And we're going to go over it right now. And for, they said, you're great. We can't do it in 42. They promised that we, we can do it in 43, but it would, they didn't mean it. They, didn't, they never had any intention of allowing, the British had no intention of allowing a cross-channel invasion, but they kind of lied to America in order to keep 
uh, King and Marshall and a couple of other people from saying, well, we're getting really mad at you now. And what, tell you what we'll do. We'll take three-fourths of our forces. So we'll, we'll put them over into the Pacific. What do you think about that? They say, oh, oh, oh settle down, settle down. We might do it in 43. We're not saying we won't, but it was a lie. They had no intention. Of the, their strategy was they were f- terrified of World War I and the fact that you could go down the street in London in 1925 and not see any young men. They say, we just we can't let that happen again. We understand the American position because you didn't lose a million people in World War I. That's how much, including the Dominions, the British lost 975,000 KIA in World War I. And they just didn't want that to happen again. He says, it's easy for you Americans to say, let's go, because you never had that kind of a Holocaust. So what, uh, how's waiting going to help them? They're going to, the, the Soviet, the Russians will... Good tire, tire them out? That's part of it, yes. And the other part of it is the miscalculated notion that the bombing campaign would break Germany physically and mentally. And then it would be such a pile of rubble and it would be so demoralized from this bombing campaign that when the time comes to invade, it's, it's going to be a cakewalk. As soon as we land, they'll start surrendering because they'll just be... The ability of the heavy four-engine bomber to destroy everything in its path, it probably is thir- was 30 times overrated compared to what it could actually do. 30, not three, 30. It was an insane belief in the power of the bomber that gave the British the confidence to say, don't worry, don't worry. They weren't just trying to delay for the sake of delay. They felt that this bombing campaign, Butcher Harris was one of the guys, Dow, Dowling, they thought that they could, what, what we're going to do to the German cities, don't worry, there won't even be a fight, is what they were saying. Okay, and it's probably a good time to talk about the pro-Russia propaganda campaign in the United States. Yes, that happened, uh, you know, during uh, the period from June of 41 to December of 41, most Americans didn't care who won. They weren't even necessarily rooting for the Russians to defeat Hitler. There was a, Truman even said, whoever starts to win, I'll start rooting for the other side to balance it out. Uh, but once we became allies, that was a different story. And then uh, it, for the sake of prosecuting the war more effectively, the, the United States developed this propaganda campaign in favor of Russia that, again, I understand the reason they did it, but it, was, it went out of control. The so Russians they had to convince... The- the Americans that Russia was they made Russians movies. were good. All you have to do is rent. You can find it online too. Uh, it's the uh, it's Joseph Davies, right? Joseph Davies, a movie called Mission to Moscow. Okay. If you find that online and you watch it carefully, at the end of it, you'll say, "Oh my God, that was revolting." Because they're so they're kissing. They, they're so kissing up to Stalin. It was worse, and I'm not kidding you. It was worse than a Soviet propagandist would have written for a, a screenplay. Worse. So, so this was an on-purpose propaganda movie? Yes. What is so it again? Mission to Moscow? Mission to Moscow. And there was a book by the same title by uh, Ray Davies. And the, and the guy who produced the movie didn't like what had, you know, he, he protested what, what had been done with his movie. They changed it around. And they said, well, too bad. And, and Davies went to Moscow and he, he filmed it. He screened it in the Kremlin. For Stalin, and it's a first-rate production values for 1943. It's a superb movie, you know. So what would I give it for with the movie? It's not in there. I would, I would give it three stars because it's a well-made movie. Uh-huh. 
You know, and it has value. And it's, it's, Stalin it, it, liked it, it's it, obviously. Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Oh, and I got to tell you a story. This is a kind of a new story. It's okay. called Pepper Brandy. It's called the story. Uh, Anthony Eden is visiting Moscow in early uh, 40, uh, late 41. He's visiting Moscow. Who's that? He's, he was the foreign secretary of, of England, of okay. Britain. And he's visiting them, and uh, he's, he's, he's doing the propaganda. He's doing the Davies thing. He's like intoxicated with yes. loving Russia and loving Moscow. And, and, and he's touring the battlefields, and he's stunned because he sees hundreds of German soldiers frozen to death in all different poses. And then he sees some Russians are frozen to death, but the Russians have much better coats. You know, and he can see the writing on the wall. He understands. So they come back and they have a big feast, and they're all drinking and they're all having a good time. And Eden considers himself a fancy drinker, and he sees this orange drink. And he says, "What is that? Is that your Russian uh, whiskey?" And Stalin lies to him and says, "Yes, that's our Russian whiskey." And he looks at it. He looks at Molotov and he winks. And and Eden doesn't realize it's pepper brandy that even the toughest drinker is going to have trouble with. Yeah. And so. <laughs> Eden, you know, downs a big glass. Go, go, go. He thinks, I'm a tough train. And then he's choking. <laughs> His eyes watering and he's coughing. And as he's doubled over and coughing and choking, Stalin says, Aha, only a strong people can handle such a drink. Hitler is learning this the hard way. It's interesting to hear about the chumminess between the States and England and Russia. You don't usually think of that. And this propaganda... Went kind of it continued. Too, too far and was harmful at the end of the war in Yalta. Yes, because uh, when Stalin knows that the United States is going out of its way to love Russia in every way on every subject, then he can get kind of tough. You know, he can, he could, for example, during the uh, Warsaw Uprising, the, the British. The British wanted to uh, drop supplies into the Warsaw Ghetto to help the rebels. And then they didn't have the fuel to come back for the return trip, so they said, How, we'll, we'll drop the supplies and then we'll land in Russia. Our friend, our ally. Stalin refused. No good reason for Stalin to refuse. There's no good reason. And so Churchill said, you know what? We'll confront them. We'll just land. We'll drop the supplies into the Warsaw Ghetto, and then we'll just land in Russia, and then we'll just see what happens. We'll yeah. just have the show to... And, and Roosevelt would have none of it. He says, no, then we won't drop the supplies. If Stalin doesn't want us to land, then we won't land. That is how bad, and I don't hate Roosevelt. I'm not one of these people, oh, that no good socialist. I'm not that, I, I love Roosevelt. He's got so many great qualities. So I'm just saying in terms of being naive about Russia, it was his Achilles heel, and it, it did a lot of harm to American foreign policy, both during the war and after. We still have to talk about Guadalcanal, the Italian campaign, the Malta campaign, which people don't know about, uh, and then D-Day, and this, these, oh, how the Germans kept their morale up, even though it was pretty clear to everyone that, but them, that it was over. After this on WBZ. WBZ yeah. News Radio 10. That's why we're here to talk. Now, what do you say? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and conditions apply. See website for details. I know how this sounds, but something told me to turn on the radio. No voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio zombies the all night long. You just have to listen. Bradley J's coming on strong. Jay talking. Bradley J. You're up next. It won't be long. WBZ. Can I talk? Talk to you. You gotta talk as well. The hour is gone. News Radio 1030. We gotta call for the J's. BZ, we continue with Mike Donovan, prolific writer that we're focusing on uh, World War II, but all his books, including books on America in the, the U.S. in the time of various presidents that we discussed earlier, all on Amazon. We won't go through, through the whole list again quite yet we have a lot to get through. We're talking World War II. And I think it might be a good time to just give a nod to Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal. The question would be why Guadalcanal in the same sense as why Gettysburg? Why did the whole Pacific War come down to this one particular location at Guadalcanal? And the answer is that uh, Japan was making a fatal error by going into the Solomons and trying to cut off the uh, supply line between Australia and the United States. Originally, the J Japanese strategy was to establish what was essentially a defensive perimeter, not an offensive perimeter, uh, ar around the Pacific. And it stopped at, at uh, you know, Rabaul and at the upper end of the Solomons, uh, the, the northern end of New Guinea, not the southern end. It was supposed to be a defensive perimeter, but then they got victory disease. That's what they called it. We became overconfident. This is too easy. So they began extending their, their initial goals. If they had stuck to their initial plan and maintained a defensive perimeter, which means hold northern New Guinea, don't go into the Solomons, and harass the supply line between Australia and the United States, but don't try to sever it completely by taking all the islands on the way, because after, after the Solomons comes New Caledonia and Fiji, and next thing you know, Australia is completely cut off. And that would be a, a prelude to an invasion of Australia, which was never also in the initial Japanese plan. And then when they got victory disease, they started thinking about invading Australia. And this greed, this excessive desire for offense, was a fatal error. In the long run, Japan was going to lose the war anyway. But it made a big difference in the negative that they decided to reach out into the Solomons. So... They, they established a naval base at uh, Tulagi, which is right across the, the bay from uh, Guadalcanal. And then when the United States Navy heard about this, said, it's just a seaplane base. That's all it was. It was a little seaplane base. And the United States panicked. They said, that seaplane base is going to lead to an airfield, which is going to lead to harassment, which is going to lead to the next step, which is to start invading past the Solomons. And then we're cut off, so we can't have this. So there's, there's a six-month campaign that basically started over a little seaplane base. And before you know it, both countries started just forming up their armies and navies to fight over this one. It's like two strong guys going after a penny. It's, the, it's, it's not the object itself. It's what it means and who's got the power. So that's how Guadalcanal became the focus. Switching back to Europe, the Italian campaign, the significance of that. 
Well, I would have to say that it was a failure overall, but that's, that's something that historians argue about because uh, Churchill presumed that uh, the Italian, Italy was the soft underbelly of Europe and they could come up easily through the Itali uh, Italian peninsula. And next thing you know, they, they, they were going to capture Rome and that was going to be a big psychological boost before D-Day. Well, it turns out it took forever to take Italy and they took Rome on June 5th. June 6th was D-Day, so it meant it was buried. It wasn't even a headline. On the morning papers of June 7th, you, you got to look on page 3 to see that we just took Rome. But Churchill's feeling was that we have to go up to Italy. He wasn't going to tell the Americans this necessarily. He'd confide in some people. But he was really looking to the east, to the Balkans. Italy was a pivot to Yugoslavia and the Baltics. So he's pretending that he wants to take Italy per se, but he really is using it with an eye to the east. Okay. And Malta, it's a very small island nation, but very uh, important. Well, the entire Mediterranean War was determined by the status of Malta. Malta was an allied uh, supply base, and it had uh, the, the radius that it had over the entire Mediterranean. Whoever controlled Malta basically controls the Mediterranean you know, essentially. And then when the Germans, first the Italians bombed Malta pretty regularly, but the Maltese didn't take that too badly. They handled that pretty well. But when the Germans came in and started bombing, it was a different story. So Malta went through a very trying time. I forget how long. It was well over a year. There was bombed almost every day. And the Germans knew at one point they could take it. They could take Malta. We can invade it, and we can take it out. And then Rommel, of all people, said, no, bypass it. We don't have to worry. You just give me the tanks and give me some fuel, and I'll go all the way to Egypt, and don't worry about Malta. And Kesselring and others were telling Hitler, no, we have to take Malta out. It's a thorn in our side. If we don't take it out in the long run, it's going to kill us. It's going to cost us the entire North African campaign. And then uh, Kesselring started getting tough with Hitler, and finally Hitler said, I don't listen to you, okay? You stick with what you do. I listen to Rommel on this. So he overruled everyone and said, so it was Hitler's decision to listen to Rommel and say, we won't take Malta. And then in the long run, it did destroy the German effort in the Mediterranean. It was, it was crucial. So we, we're short on time, and everyone knows the D-Day story. But post-D-Day, the Germans' defenses remained stout. And I'm surprised because by then... You'd think that they would understand that the end was coming and the moral would decline, but morale would decline, but it didn't. Yes, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the German soldier always believed in Hitler's stories about his uh, super weapons. He thought the V1 and the V2, and there was a, an artillery piece that was going to, and you know, he's dropping hints about nuclear bombs. They said, don't worry, we're losing the war now, but when we get these super weapons, it's going to be a different story. But the other thing is, you know, the, uh, the training of the Hitler Youth was a long-term operation. It was a 10-year, 12-year operation. By the time you reach 1944, these 10-, 12-year-old German boys are coming of age. And they've been trained for 10 years. They're fresh. They were arriving. The Hitler Youth was and arriving. And they're fanatics. It, it, they were fanatics, and they were fresh, and they were 18, and they didn't have this history of the war from 1939 to 1943. So you had this fresh blood, 
And just the training of the German army in general was just so extraordinary that you're right, the, uh, the amount of morale they had was uh, almost illogical. And how about the competition that I have heard about between Russia and the United States to get to Berlin? Well, yes, that was a, it was a matter of uh, you don't want to break your word because you presume the other person is going to break their word. You have to let the other person break their word. And so people were saying, we have to go to Berlin no matter what. Well, we have, a, we have a diplomatic agreement with the Russians that they're going to be allowed to get this far, and then we're going to only go this far. And everyone said, no, 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 just take it anyway, because you can't trust the Russians. Well, you can't preempt in a non-trust on the presumption that the other person is not going to be trustworthy. That makes you the untrustworthy one. So it was, it was the right thing to do, to, to honor the diplomatic agreement. And that area that we were supposed to, you know, allegedly the, the, the Hawks are saying we should have gone to Berlin, that area was going to have to be evacuated anyway. Because it was going to go to the, Ru the Russians anyway. It was going to go to the Russians. The mistake the that United States— That had been States diplomatically decided prior. Right. Okay. And, and the mistake that was made was not establishing the right to a corridor between the western zone and Berlin, which is in the eastern zone, and that led to like 15 years of trouble after the war. We covered a lot of ground All right. pretty quickly. I loved getting the big picture like that. You mentioned another book that I hadn't mentioned before, General History of the United States. Yes, I, I took it, and there's almost everything I've ever done takes way longer than I thought it would and is more laborious than I thought it would. It's, it's always like, I want to get this done. Oh, I thought it would take three days. It took two weeks. On and on it goes for 15 years. And then I said, well, I have all these different versions of each administration, a book. Why don't I abridge them? I tried to do one book. I couldn't do it. But I abridged it into two volumes. And abridging it was the easiest thing I ever did. It, was the most, it went way faster than I thought. So I have two books. One's called Mike Dunneman's History of the USA, uh, 1789 to 1960. And this one that I'm holding in my hand, the size of a phone book, is uh, Mike Dunneman's History of the USA, 1961 to 2016. There are abridgments of all the other books I've ever written. But it was easy to do because I know the section so well, I just look at it and I know keep it or, 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 or chop it or chop it in half. Congratulations on getting your, your big project done. Thank you. And to find you on, what's the best, uh, just Mike Donovan, anything yeah, else searching just, on uh, Amazon? Yeah, Mike Donovan History, Mike, uh, Amazon, Mike Don or Michael Edward Donovan. There's a few on, under that title. Okay, looking forward to having you back. Thank you. It's WBZ. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.